You've probably heard the expression before, they forgot where they came from. It's a common expression that we use for people who are massively successful, especially those who are overnight celebrities or gain a tremendous amount of success out of nowhere. It could be in sports, business, entrepreneurship. You know, you probably know. You, you, at some point, you know them. They were kind. They, they came from a modest upbringing. They were courteous. They had a certain character and personality about them. But suddenly, they tasted a little bit of success, and they thought they were all that. Or they thought they were better than other people. And they changed. We say the money got to them, or the influence got to them. And they don't want to associate people who they perceive to be lesser than them. The truth is, for a lot of us, we cannot handle a tremendous amount of success because it might be one of the worst things that we get for our character. Unless you're really grounded and rooted in Christ, a lot of influence for many people changes them for the worse. Some people can handle it, many people cannot. But either way, what we say to those people is, you forgot where you came from, it's gotten to your head. Here in our passage, Jesus continues the face-off with the Pharisees. Pharisees are religious leaders, part of the Jewish religious leaders of that day, and they are hounding Jesus. This has been going on for several chapters, and it's still happening now. And they're hounding him because Christ is doing miracles, he's doing preaching and teaching, he's claiming that he is God, and this is rubbing the Pharisees the wrong way. And one of the reasons that Jesus gives that the things that he's saying are true about heaven and hell and the word and himself is because he knows where he comes from and he knows where he's going. His origin and his destination is the same, heaven. In fact, seven times in this one passage it tells us that he gave up heaven. One commentator says that he left heaven to give us heaven. That is to say, for anyone who turns from their sin and believes in Jesus, this possibility of heaven in the afterlife with the Lord is possible because of what Christ has done. Jesus' claim that he's a Savior is accurate because he comes from heaven and eventually will go back there. We don't think about eternity enough. Uh, Heaven and, and the afterlife is a, a major part of Christianity. And for many of us, for those who have trusted in Christ, where we're going is not really on our minds and hearts to the degree that it should be. But if it was, it would bring a tremendous amount of joy and help us get through life trials now. But it's, it's not. What's going on in the world, what's going on in society, social media, our next big problem, our own personal ambition, our own personal insecurities, our own personal issues. It, those are the things that are in front of us every day, not the ultimate destination for God and God's people. Knowing where Christ is from and Christ knowing where he was going helped him in his earthly life, and it will do the same for us as well. It's not abstract. If you read Scripture, if you study Scripture, it will be more concrete and it will give you more joy about the life to come for those who belong to Christ. 
But this face-off is still going on, and there's a dialogue going on. We start in verse 13, where they say, the Pharisees, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. If you've been paying attention with us for the Gospel of John sermon series, the witness and testimony are big themes that occur over and over again. The Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're like biographies on Jesus' life. Right, so if you ever read a biography about a famous figure, you kind of get to know them more. That's essentially what a gospel is. And John's aim in the fourth gospel is to convince his audience. Remember, the Bible is written for you, but not to you. He had an original audience, other people in mind, not you and I. And he's trying to convince them that Christ is God, that you should believe in him. So there's all this talk about witness and testimony and evangelism all throughout. And the Pharisees hear this. And they're saying, essentially, this is what they're trying to say, you say you're God, but nobody else does. You're you're just self-identifying as the Messiah. Who else is saying that? Well, it's wrong on a number of levels because Christ has already given proof, like John the Baptist, the Scriptures, God, right? But what the Pharisees are trying to do is saying, hey, you think you're God, but are you really God? And not only so, they're trying to use Old Testament rules against Jesus in the wrong way. The Old Testament rules that they're using, though, are for criminal cases that require capital punishment. They're using the rules in the wrong way. So they're they're thwarting the Old Testament scripture to try to bring Jesus down, but they're using the wrong criteria to evaluate his claims. Not to mention, Jesus, on several examples, have given witnesses to his divinity, namely the miracles that he's done already throughout John's gospel. If this was the court of law, they're putting Jesus in the dock when it should be the other way around. Uh, Imagine standing in front of Bill Gates saying, who are you to talk about business? Go to LeBron James and say, you're going to talk about basketball? Prove something to me. Or your favorite musician on the radio or Spotify or whatever, and you, you meet them and you say, show me your credentials. That would be unthinkable. You would just be glad to meet them. Can I have your autograph? I'm so, so glad to be around you. You're amazing. That's the way they should have been treating Jesus, but they didn't. They were trying to question him and put him in his place, so to speak. Oh, so they thought. Should have been in awe of Jesus, but they were questioning him incorrectly. Uh, Jesus has already proven over and over again that his claims are true, but they didn't want to hear it. Someone was telling me about someone in their life who knows the Old Testament really well, knows the rules, can quote Scripture left and right, but has not submitted his life, or at least I don't think he has, to the Lord in believing and trusting in him. Someone said, he doesn't, he doesn't understand grace. And I said, no, he doesn't want grace. There's crystal clear proof everywhere. Sometimes people ask, you know, how come, you know, we have one billion Christians in the world, roughly speaking, out of over 7.7 billion, the number's increasing on a regular basis. How come there's so many people who don't know God in a saving way? Well, there's several reasons to that theological question. One reason is that people don't come to faith in Christ, not because there's a lack of evidence, but because of a hardened heart. A hardened heart, like stone, 
It's, it's, it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to be skeptical. In fact, we should have some doubt and some element of mystery in the Christian faith. And we should investigate our doubts and not just be passive and think, oh, I'll, just, I'll deal with that when I get older, but actually think about that now. But for many people, they, they may not say this out loud, but it's just I, they, they, would, they love their sin more than they want to confess their need for a Savior. They don't want to admit they need a Savior. They want to live in sin and be autonomous and independent and do their own thing. That's one of the main reasons, a hardened heart. So un- doubt is acceptable, totally acceptable to have doubts about the Bible, about Christ, about the afterlife. That's totally acceptable, and there's grace and room for that. And I think if you study the, your doubts, I think your faith will actually grow and leaves worshipped by angels in heaven perfect relationship with Father and Spirit, and leaves that by angels in heaven, perfect relationship with Father and Spirit, and leaves that to angels in heaven, perfect relationship with Father and Spirit, and leaves that to heaven, perfect relationship with Father and Spirit, and leaves that to add perfect relationship with Father and Spirit, and leaves that to Add to his relationship with Father and Spirit, and leaves that to add to his divinity, relationship with Father and Spirit, and leaves that to add to his divinity, humanity, Father and Spirit, and leaves that to add to his divinity, humanity, to become in Spirit, and leaves that to add to his divinity, humanity, to become full, and leaves that to add to his divinity, humanity, to become fully man, to add fully man and stay fully God and live a perfect life and die on the cross, rise from the dead. He knew that he was going to go back to heaven. So around this time, 30, 31 years old, roughly speaking, he's like, I know where I come from, heaven. I've been sent by the Father. I've got a mission. I've got goals. I've got ambition. I'm not just here twiddling my thumbs. Although life is hard right now, because he's getting a lot of criticism, hostility, opposition, single, not much money, no family, doesn't have a place to lay his head at night. Scripture says elsewhere, the knowledge of knowing that one day it'll be over and he'll be with God the Father again in perfect afterlife. And oh, by the way, his sacrifice makes it possible for anyone to join in the people of God through simply believing in him, helped him during the hard parts about his life. One of the, uh, the biggest attractions to Christianity is the hopefulness that it brings. Um, it's okay to be discouraged. It's okay to be disappointed. But if you tap into the resources available in the Christian faith, uh, you won't feel devastated. You might for a little bit, but you'll soon get back up on your feet because you know that God works out all things for good for those who love him, and you know that one day it'll be over. Uh, even the Apostle Paul says one place in Scripture, he says he's perplexed. I love that little word in the New Testament, perplexed. He says he's confused. The Apostle Paul was brilliant, and then he was like, I don't understand all this stuff that's going on in my life right now. You know, just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean it'll be easy. There'll be difficult things, things that you can't fully understand. But ultimately, it's this hope 
of God's presence now and being with him forever, where there's no more sin and no more sickness and no more Satan and life never ends and it's perfect beyond our comprehension should help us, for those who've trusted in Christ, get through the hardships now. We're so worldly. Uh, Worldly means uh, thinking and living patterns congruent with the world, uh, fallen society, rather than God's word. Comfort and security and all these things matter more to us. If we'd reflect more on what is coming, we'd have so much more joy. Uh, Tim Keller says it this way, there's nothing more practical for sufferers than to have hope. Than to have hope. We need to reflect on this, to think about it. You know, with everything going on in society, um, one litmus test you can say is, is your hope in heaven or not, or if, you're, if this is really is important to you, is if, if you consider, if you feel just unbelievably anxious and incredibly fearful, there could be some psychological, emotional things there, so I want to I make room for that, right? I know there's emotional stuff going on in certain people's lives, but if you feel uh, totally fearful and anxious all the time about stuff, and you, you are a Christian, it might mean that your hope is actually not in the next life to come. It's in this life. And so there, there's a remedy. There's a way that's better to live, and that's to say, hey, I'm going to work hard and be faithful to the Lord and trust him, but ultimately, there's so much in my life that's out of my control. And ultimately, one day, I'll know it'll be better. It'll be better. Uh, reflecting on eternity is not just something for people to do on their deathbed. It's not just for the older generation. It's for younger people, too. There's a C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist. Then he became a Christian. He says this, If you read history you will find that the Christians who did most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. Ambitions are good. Being ambitious is good. Goals are good. Wanting to be successful at your job is a great desire to have. But in the same sense, for those who follow Christ, we know that ultimately our lives, our money, our time, our energy, our stewardship should be focused on not just this life, but making most of our lives in the next life through storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven, through telling other people about Christ, through having this tremendous peace and joy that characterizes our life that other people say, there's something different about you. Jesus talks about heaven and the afterlife, then he talks about judgment. He says, you judge according to the flesh, talking to the Pharisees. By the way, Jesus did say hard things a lot of times. Often it was to the Pharisees, not to his disciples. He's very tender with his disciples. Sometimes he said hard things to them, but a lot of his hard sayings were to uh, people who thought they were all that or better than other people, like the Pharisees. So he says, I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So Jesus is saying, I don't judge the way, he says, I judge no one. He's not literally saying, I don't judge anyone ever. That can't be true, because in other places he says he judges people. When he returns, he's coming back to judge. There's judgment day. Everyone will stand before God and give an account of your life to him. He certainly is judge. He's not just loving. He is. But he's also one who's going to evaluate people based on whether or not they have come to a saving relationship with him or not. But when Jesus says, I judge no one according to the flesh, what he's telling the Pharisees is this. 
I don't judge by superficial criteria like you guys do. I don't judge based off of external appearances. Uh, in that day, you know, how tan you were, how good you looked, where you come from, how tall you were, all that stuff that actually matters still today for people was, was a huge basis for judging people. And that's superficial. Uh, for the Messiah, the, a lot of people, including the religious leaders, thought that he was going to come with some sort of political agenda and be this macho man with money and live in palaces, and it would be totally obvious how he would come. But Christ comes born of a virgin, and from Nazareth, which is a poor town, and ends up homeless and hangs out with these 12 guys who are like fishermen and tells people that he forgives them and, and hangs out with people who are lowly in society. As one author says, God, God's promises come in unexpected ways. This was a total reversal of what the religious leaders thought was going to happen. And they were judging Jesus based off their perceptions of what they thought the Messiah should be like. They were judging in a superficial manner. We do that too here in St. Louis when we ask people, what high school did you go to? Nowhere else do they ask that question. As one who's been to undergraduate school, graduate school with people from around the world, when you ask that question to someone from somewhere else, they're like, that's insane. Why would you ask me that? Now, they might have their own idiosyncratic or little things that they do there, but we ask the question. One reason is because it's kind of fun, maybe a little bit, or because... Uh, you know, we have a lot of high schools, and so that, that uh, you know, if you're in education, you kind of want to know. It's kind of fun to talk about, and there's, there's room for that. But I wonder if we ask that question, what high school did you go to? Because we are like the Pharisees who want to judge people based off superficial criteria. Oh, you're from North County? Oh, you're from West County? Oh, you're over there on the east side? You're on the south side? You're in the city? Oh, I know about you. I know your socioeconomic background. I know how much money you've got. I know where you come from. And we think that by simply meeting someone and getting a, few, a little bit of knowledge about them, we can size them up and we determine right then and there if we want to be their friend or not. That's like being like the Pharisees. It's fine to ask that question if you want to, but don't use that question as a means by which that you think you're going to evaluate someone right by after meeting them. Uh, some of you have been married 50, 60 years, 70 years, and I've heard you say this in other contexts, and it blows my mind, but you're saying, I've been married for five decades, and I still learn something about my spouse every day. Men say that in particular. <laughs> I wonder why. That blows my mind. Uh, what is that? One thing that teaches us is that people are complex People are complex. You can't figure out people right away, right when you meet them. Uh, we need to doubt our intuitions, doubt our assumptions. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, he's a famous nonfiction writer, one of my favorite writers. I'm, I've been on a Gladwell click lately. He wrote a book called Talking to Strangers, What We Know About People We Don't Know. Fascinating. Uh, his work is fascinating to me, really is. He says this, We think we can understand people. We think that by meeting someone, shaking their hand, looking into their eyes, we can get a grasp on who they are, how they feel, and what their motives or intentions are. We think that a little bit of personal knowledge gives us a big insight into their character. A job interview shows us if they'll be a good employee. A first date can indicate the likelihood of compatibility. 
we're wrong. Strangers are complex. Certainly, we don't want to be pushovers, naive people. We don't want to be so open-minded our brains fall out. But you're going to be deceived. No matter how smart you are, how intelligent you are, if you ask anybody who's, who's made a hiring mistake, they said this person fit the, the mold. I mean, they were perfect in their interview, and three months in, it was a disaster. Uh, you're going to be a little bit deceived here or there, especially in business or other areas like that. There's, because of sin, you can't always not be duped. But it's better to be believing the best in people and be occasionally duped than it is to be over here like the Pharisees and say, I think I know everything about everyone. I met you a minute ago. I already know a lot about you. Uh, people who are cynical, people who are cynical, they're cynical because they think they're omniscient. Omniscient means all-knowing. People who are cynical are cynical because they think they know it all. You don't. We don't. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt to believe the best in them. And if you meet people who are different than you, you might be pleasantly surprised. People who vote different than you or live somewhere that's different than you. You know, I think sometimes we do this in the church. If you see someone in the book of James, it talks about this a little bit. If you meet someone and they tell you they got a divorce, and within 10 seconds you think you know everything about that person's life, you're being sinful, sinfully judgmental. You don't know what that person's been through. How much trauma they've been through. How much emotionally it's bothered them. Or someone with a, I was wearing a backwards hat yesterday. We were out. Wore a backwards hat because my hair is thinning out. So I went to wear a hat. It was kind of all over the place. It was dehydrated with the sun and all this kind of stuff. I wore it backwards because I couldn't see. And so I wondered, you know, what, what would people think of someone if we came in our church context with a backwards hat or tattoos or someone who's divorced? If, if you meet this kind of people in the church context and you think you can size them up based off how they look, that's being foolish. Instead, we should believe the best in people and serve people and love people if we do that, we'll be pleasantly surprised to meet that God's people, Jewish and Gentiles, black and white, rich and poor, are complex, and we're different, but we're one in Christ, and that should matter more. Christ goes to talking about the law. When you see the word law in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's talking about the Ten Commandments, or the first five books of the Bible, or all of the rules in the Old Testament in general. And Jesus says, okay, you need two witnesses. He says, well, my father is a witness. I'm a witness. Boom, you've got two. So he's shooting the breeze back with them as the Pharisees are trying to hound them. And later in the Bible, we learn that Christ actually perfects the law. He fulfills the law. The Old Testament matters 100%. We should read the Old Testament. We should not skip it. Paul says in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. That was before the New Testament was even written. All scripture, including the Old Testament. Scripture actually in Greek means Old Testament. So we should read the Old Testament, but we have to read it properly and see that it fits together, that the Old Testament are the promises, and the New Testament is the fulfillment to those promises. And Christ fulfills it perfectly. So if you talk to a theologian, someone who studies God and teaches the Bible for a living, and as in sort of an academic setting, they'll tell you, that there's three uses of the law. One of them is to reveal our need for a savior. So go out and try to live the Old Testament perfectly. Let me see how far you get. 
Try to fulfill all the Ten Commandments perfectly. Let's see how, you, you probably last eight hours. Maybe ten. Uh, part of the reason for the law is to show us when Jesus comes in the New Testament, he doesn't water down the law. He makes it even harder. He says, you've heard it that uh, adultery is sinful, but I tell you that if you look at a woman lustfully, that's sinning too. So, so part of the use of the law is to say, to show us that we can't do it on our own. We can't meet God's perfect requirement. So God had to send Jesus, not just to die and rise from the dead, although that's true, but I think sometimes we rush too soon to the cross and to the resurrection. The cross and resurrection are very important, but we have to appreciate Jesus' perfect life as well. He obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf so that if anyone would turn from their sin and believe in Jesus, we don't just get forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future, although that's true, but we get his righteousness. It's like, almost like plagiarism, where someone gets a 4.0 in school, and you get credit for it, and you did nothing. That's what it means to believe in the gospel. The gospel is not, oh, I go to class, and the teacher tries to help me, as I heard one other pastor from Idaho say, we, we don't go to class and the teacher, oh, I'll help you out with that homework assignment. The gospel is that you go to class and the teacher says, I'll do that for you. You don't do anything. I'm going to get a perfect score and you're going to get credit for it, even though you're going to fail in a million other ways in life. And yet, if we believe in Jesus, that's how God changes his attitude towards us from wrath to love, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. So Jesus brings in the law. One reason is to show that he fulfills it perfectly, and we get credit for it for those who believe in him. Jesus starts to get a little bit more loud and a little bit more vocal with these guys. In fact, he actually starts to preach a sermon and then he says, I'm going away. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus says another one of those statements that they don't understand, but he's trying to tell them that you're going to die in your sin. I, f- I find it interesting that he says sin there, not sins. Sin, singular, not plural. Verse 21. What Jesus is saying is that uh, there's forgiveness for sins, for any sin you commit. Pornography, lust, adultery, divorce, Greed, arrogance, cheating, stealing. There, there's sin. There's, there's grace available for that. But if you don't believe and you live in unbelief, there is no grace for that. And the Pharisees are not believing. They're refusing to trust Christ, to believe in him. Jesus says you have to believe that I am he, verse 24. In the, in the original language, the word he is not even there. It's just you have to believe that I am I am. We've seen those words come up over and over in John's gospel. Because one of the reasons why it's there is to point us back to Exodus when Moses was going to let the people go. He's going to go to Pharaoh and say, I'm ready to go. Get these Israelites out of slavery. Who should I say is sending me? God the Father says, tell them I am who I am is sending you. So Jesus is saying that he is the I am. In other words, he's saying you have to believe that he is God. Not just a good man, not just a good teacher, but fully God. Now Jesus says that he is in the world, but not of the world. The world is not like our beautiful world with planets and creation and so forth. 
but he is not of the world in the sense to say that uh, it's talking about fallen people and people who don't live for God and worship God the way that they live. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not like them. You, you're like them, Pharisees, but I'm not. And this conversation continues back and forth, dialogue. Jesus tells them who he is, that he fulfills the law perfectly. This is a public conversation, and we learn towards the end that many people believed in him. Not everyone. Ministry leaders know that not 100% of people are going to pay attention or repent and believe in Jesus, but we labor for the some or the many who will believe in Christ. And then that verse there, verse 28, Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and then I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. What is that pointing to? Lifted up the Son of Man. I, I alluded to it, see if you catch it in the Old Testament Scripture reading of Numbers 21. And, and there what happens is that Moses is leading the people of God, the Israelites, into the wilderness. And the people, although they were in slavery and rescued, they start to grumble and complain. And uh, I understand we all have bad days and stuff happens, and there's room to say some things that you probably shouldn't, and, you know, there's room to be upset here or there. But a consistent grumbling when you belong to God, he, he only tolerates so much of it. He expects thanks, thankfulness to him. And the people are grumbling about the food and the environment and the heat and so on and so forth. So God decides to take some of them, to make an example out of them. Like, we don't think grumbling is a serious sin. It's very serious. It shows the ultimate discontentment. And uh, grumbling saying, God, you don't know how to run the universe. You don't know what you're doing. And so the people see that some died because God sent serpents, and so they start to repent, and they say, help, we're sorry, Moses, we're sorry, God, what should we do? And then God says to Moses, put a serpent on a pole and set it up in the air. Anyone who looks will live. What does that point you to? To Christ. He was not just put on a pole, he was put on a tree. And the Old Testament says anyone who's on a tree is cursed. God became cursed on our behalf. And now if we look to him by believing in him, we can live. In other words, we can have forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God. That story in the Old Testament points to Christ in the New Testament. And that's just not a, oh, a one-time thing, or once I get saved, I believe in Jesus once. But this is a continual remembering and a continual looking to Christ and believing in him. give you two examples from history. One's an atheist, one's a Christian, Thomas Paine. He was an atheist, secular person, very smart, incredibly smart. He wrote a book called The Age of Reason. He was not only an atheist, he was an evangelist for atheism. So he was not only like middle finger to the sky, but he's trying to get everyone else on his side too. So he wrote books about trying to get people away from the Christian faith. And on his deathbed, he said this, I would give worlds, if I had them, that the Age of Reason, his book, had not been published. 
Oh Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? Wait, I thought you didn't believe in God. And then he says, but there is no God. But if there should be, what, what will become of me hereafter? That's a terrifying position to be in. Isaac Watts, who is a contemporary of Payne, he says this. He's a Christian hymn writer. He wrote songs. He has a totally different view on death and the afterlife because on his death, but he said this. It is a great mercy that I have no manner of fear or dread of death. I could, if God please, lay my head back and die without terror this afternoon. Which side are you on? You know, life is filled with many trials. Many of you have gone through way more harder things than me. There's no other belief system or no other religion that provides the hope that Christianity does. I was listening to an interview with Larry King and Malcolm Gladwell. I mentioned Malcolm earlier, and you know, Larry King is super blunt. And he asks Malcolm, he said, what do you think happens after you die? And there was a pause, and then Larry jumped in there again and said, what you think, not what you know, because nobody knows. I said, Larry, actually we do know. Because Scripture reveals it. For those who believe in Jesus, we can have 100% utter confidence and utter guarantee that as Paul says, to live as Christ, to die is gain, better. And if the more you reflect on where you're going, the more joy you'll have and the more you'll be able to handle life's difficulties as they come now. Let us pray. Oh, Father, Wow. I mean, it's just so amazing to be a Christian. The resources, the hope, the joy. It's not easy. It's hard in so many ways. Um, But Lord, we just want to say thank you for what you have done. God, please open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to understand more. Help us, Lord, to live for the afterlife. Help us, Lord, to believe, to continually believe. Bless us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.